You gotta smoke. The United States is the no-smoking nation. No smoking, no drinking, no drugs, no women. Unless, of course, you're married. No guns, no foul language, no red meat. Land of the free. Snake Plissken has to go into another city that's been turned into a prison. Only this time, it's Los Angeles. Join us as we chat about sequels that are basically remakes, maps to Tom Arnold's house, and just how hard it is for Dave Bautista to stay shirtless. Then we find out if Escape from L.A. stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the blood Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say The movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone. It seems like we have a new episode of The Test of Time today. I'm James Brief. Joining me, as always, is my podcast partner, the director of this podcast, Alan Noah. Welcome to the studio, Al. Hello, everybody. How are you? How are you? How are you? It's it's like I'm pointing to different listeners, but that doesn't work in an audio format. How are you doing there, James? I'm doing well. It is a fun week. I always like doing like two-parters, like where we talk about a movie and the sequel. Recording on the shoulders of last week's episode, Escape from New York. Right. And you had said that you had never seen Escape from New York and you had never seen its sequel, Escape from L.A. Is that right? That is correct. And, you know, watching this film, there's a lot of similarities between these two films. And and in some ways, it has been reviewed online and uh, known as a high budget remake uh, of the first uh, low budget film, Escape from New York. I think that's definitely fair. There's more than a passing similarity. There are a lot of borrowed elements. Yeah. But um, this film is not the first film that's been known as, you know, more of a remake of the previous film in the series. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the Evil Dead movies, uh, Evil Dead 1 and 2. Yeah, the second Evil Dead film uh, by director Sam Raimi is a higher budget remake of Evil Dead, which is like an ultra low budget film. But it's funny because Evil Dead 2 is still a low budget film. But other films uh, that are like this, have you ever seen the film Desperado? No, but I know that it's like a sequel slash remake of El Mariachi. I remember when it came out, that was like a big thing. Exactly. And then uh, one of Vin Diesel's first films, it was uh, an indie horror film called Pitch Black. And then they made a really high budget, completely different sequel called The Chronicles of Riddick. And then for the third, they went back pretty low budget again and kind of did what is kind of a remake of the first film in a movie called Riddick. Then you have your films that are you know, not exactly remakes uh, of the first film, but very thematically close, like uh, Home Alone 1 and 2 or The Hangover 1 and 2. These films uh, work to varying degrees of success. Uh, I liked uh, Home Alone 1 and 2 because I essentially thought they were you know, charming enough, differently enough to, to warrant that. But uh, yeah, sometimes you, you watch a film and you're like, I feel like there's nothing too different about this film. Like, like a cover song that is simply exact that song but sung in a different voice sometimes works and sometimes it's like no you got to do something else with it to make it work 
you know, this certainly isn't an original thought, but definitely when Star Wars The Force Awakens came out, I thought and a lot of other people thought like, oh, so it's basically just a remake of A New Hope, which it pretty much is. Some people said that about Superman Returns, that it was basically just a rehash of Superman, the motion picture, which it kind of is. I mean, I like Superman Returns, but I mean, it's not the most original story. I mean, it it does borrow a lot of elements from Superman 1, and it does some things differently, too. Even Jurassic World as a remake of Jurassic Park, well, it's different because in Jurassic World, the park is open Yeah, that's true, but it does sort of borrow a lot of the elements of uh, Jurassic Park 1. So, I mean, like, these things do happen sometimes, and I think the reason for it is that filmmakers think that fans want to see some of these old, familiar things and elements and scenes and characters, etc., and then they sort of are boxed in by that an analogy is when you hear about like these bands who go on tour and they play all of their old hits and the fans love it and then they say all right now we're gonna play something off of our new album and everyone gets up to go and get a beer and go to the bathroom people like what is familiar and that's true but you know when a movie feels like a retread that can be frustrating and i certainly thought that Escape from L.A. was a retread of Escape from New York, you know, having watched these two movies back to back. What did you think as someone who was kind of coming in fresh? Well, I'd never seen these films, so there was definitely uh, an element to I've seen this exact scene before, but this is shot much better from a cinematography point of view. Right, right. So the plot of this movie is that, once again, Snake Plissken is recruited by the U.S. government to break out of a city-sized prison. But this time, Snake is tasked with finding a powerful weapon that was stolen by the president's daughter. As he tracks her down, Snake has to evade a dangerous plastic surgeon, go surfing, and hang glide with an old nemesis. In the end, Snake finds the weapon and escapes from L.A. But will he turn it over to the government, or will Snake decide who's the bad guy? The answer is that Snake decides. Um, <laughs> so so this movie had a much higher budget than its predecessor, but I remember that it wasn't a big hit at the box office. No, and in fact, one of the reasons why I never saw this film or uh, its predecessor was I remember distinctly that this summer, and this was the summer of Independence Day and a lot of big films, uh, this was a huge flop that summer. I specifically remember them showing the previews for this film uh, over the course of the previous, uh, I guess, like six months or so. And I really remember people really not being that enthused by it. Like they would be like, Snake is back. And I feel like people like me and a lot of other people would be like, who? Like, I like Kurt Russell, but who the hell is Snake? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about making a sequel to a beloved cult movie That cult movie has a cult following. Cult meaning small. And the people who loved Escape from New York were rabid fans of it and, you know, would analyze every frame and, you know, go into obsessive detail about Snake Plissken's backstory and yada, yada, yada. But it's a small group and they spent more money on this movie. A lot more money. Yeah. And and they were targeting a bigger audience, but uh, it didn't really work out that way. 
No, uh, it had a $50 million budget. It wound up earning $25 million when it finally puttered out of theaters. It got beaten by, in its opening weekend, by several places by a movie called Jack. Do you remember that film? No. It's a film where Robin Williams is like a 12-year-old kid, but he ages really fast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This film, uh, you know, it opens with uh, $8.9 million, and then it very quickly faded. It went the next week to $4 million, then $2 million, then $1 million, and then it was out. Like, th- this film did not do well. Yikes. So uh, they kind of have to do something about the fact that the first film took place in 1997, which is supposed to be you know the future, and of course it's 1996 when, when this film's coming out. And they basically say that in 1998, LA, uh, it's a hotbed of immorality, and a few years later, there's a huge 9.6 uh, Richter scale earthquake, which draws uh, like the ocean around LA. And long story short, LA becomes like an island. And there's also a religious fanatic that he becomes president. He becomes president for life. And he issues Directive 17, which is similar to last movies. Uh, New York is one big prison, but this time it's L.A., which is one big prison. In Escape from New York, you kind of got the impression that the people thrown in there were pretty bad dudes. In this film, they're explicit that the people being thrown in here, they might be criminals, but also they're people that are being convicted of moral crimes. And they include things like atheism as a moral crime. So now it's 2013, which is the present day, which I guess is 16 years after this film uh, is released. Right. So this religious fanatic president who, you know, has created this world that's not unlike a Gilead, I guess, from The Handmaid's Tale, where America is basically like a Christian moral nation and cursing and drinking and smoking and red meat and all of these things are outlawed. I thought the movie was kind of implying that this president made this earthquake happen because they say that in 1998, as a presidential candidate, he predicted that there was going to be a millennium earthquake for the city of sin, Los Angeles. And then it happened. So I immediately thought, oh, so he planned it. Like he made that earthquake happen. And then the American people thought, oh, he's right. He does have divine influence. And then they elected him president and then they changed the constitution so he would be president for life. But that doesn't pay off. They never explained that. Did that thought cross your mind when you were watching? No. And when he says that, I kind of got the impression it's more of like, uh, I said it from the beginning that these moral people will be stricken down by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's just one of these like your typical preacher guys. Right. And uh, this president was based on uh, Pat Robertson. So it's funny you say that. And like you said, the president's first order is, you know, sending everyone to L.A., But it's Directive 17. So why is that his first order? What happened to Directives 1 through 16? That's a fantastic point, Al. But um, (laughs) this film really requires you to have zero knowledge of the first film. They even make just one passing reference to the first film. And that's because in the beginning at this Los Angeles correctional facility where they process people, they have apprehended Snake Plissken. And they mention something like, it's been 15 years since that incident in New York. Like, that's all they say. Like, implying that there was something good he did in New York or that something happened in New York. But uh, as they're talking about him, they're like, Pliskin, you did this, and Pliskin, uh, he goes, 
call me Snake. And that's like, you know, Kurt Russell's a cool guy. And that that is definitely a line like in the trailer. It's the exact line he used in the first movie. And then they even do the exact same thing at the end of this movie when the guy says, hey, Snake, blah, 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 blah. And he says, call me Pliskin. It's the same exact thing. Um, One of the female characters looks at Snake and says, oh, he looks so retro, so 20th century, you know, like, ah, get it? Because he's got an old fashioned look. They're kind of being cheeky with themselves and saying that the first movie was kind of old fashioned. And, you know, this is a sequel that came out 15 years later, so that's fair. Um, I did appreciate that at one point you see Kurt Russell with his shirt off in this movie and you see him with his shirt off in the first movie and he's like really jacked. And, you know, like you could tell that Kurt Russell really got into shape for that movie and he looks good in this movie, too. But it's 15 years later. He's 45 years old. And when you saw him shirtless, you see a little bit of belly there. And, you know, he's in good shape. Don't get me wrong. But it's not unrealistic good shape. You know, he's a guy who is realistically fit, but still 45. Right. Uh, Like fighter turned actor Dave Bautista. uh, He's just announced that after Guardians of the Galaxy 3, he's retiring playing uh, as the character Drax because he's like, look, I can't be shirtless like forever. I've been doing it now for like eight years. It's getting tough to like maintain that Drax body. And it's not Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 where they could de-age Kurt Russell to a 1980s Kurt Russell. That's right, because uh, Kurt Russell was ego, the living planet in that movie. Um, But the plot of this movie is a little bit different from the first movie, because in the first movie, it was the president who was kidnapped and held in New York. In this movie, it's the president's daughter, and she wasn't kidnapped. She purposefully stole this weapon from the Pentagon or something, and has brought it to L.A. because she has been corrupted by this criminal who lives in L.A. because she has been depressed and she has retreated into her virtual reality simulator. And that immediately made me roll my eyes because that's such like a thing that people in the 90s thought would be the future. And to be fair, you know, that's also like the entire plot of Ready Player One. And I really like that novel. So I guess that as a trope does still come into play every now and again in the 21st century. Yeah, but a Ready Player One virtual reality is actually virtual reality. In the 90s, it was animated stuff you were watching. And maybe if you turned your head, the motion would turn as well. But it was not virtual reality. It was, it was a big television set on your head. Yeah, and and the president's daughter is named Utopia, and she has this weapon, and now it's in the wrong hands, and so Snake needs to go in and get it. And once again, they inject Snake with something that's going to motivate him to complete this mission, but this time Snake is like, what are you going to do, inject me with something like you did last time? Good luck, I'll kill you. And they're like, no, we already did, because when Snake was walking into the processing facility, this woman walked by and just kind of scratched his hand. And uh, that was when they gave him this virus that gives him 10 hours to live or he will have a horrible, horrible death. And Snake is pissed. He wants to kill the guys who are telling him this, which includes the president himself, by the way. But they're not really in the room with him. They're just holograms. They're really in the room next door. This is important to remember. This is foreshadowing. 
Well, I, I really did like that because, I mean, it's a good fake out. I mean, it's uh, it's something that had probably been done maybe a little bit better in movies like Total Recall. But um, I do like the hologram element. I think it's neat. So, yeah, once again, we have this uh, exact same premise where Snake is the only one they could send in for some reason. And uh, they've given him, uh, you know, only X amount of hours before he's going to die. So he goes in. And right before he goes in, the main guy in the facility says something like, this is about global war. So these are high stakes, hotshot. Like that kind of made me roll my eyes. Like if there's high stakes, you don't need to say these are high stakes. Like specifically calling it out for the audience. Ugh, come on, we get it. So Snake like takes a submarine into L.A., there's a gag where he pilots it by a shark that like tries to bite the submarine and then he goes right by Universal Studios, which is underwater, like referencing the Jaws ride at Universal Studios. Uh, but he crash lands on a beach and he meets this old dude. Apparently, his character's name is Pipeline. I don't know if they ever say that in the movie. Uh, it's played by Peter Fonda. To be honest, I didn't recognize him, but I saw that on IMDb. Um Eventually, he comes upon this guy, Cuervo Jones, who is the revolutionary who the president's daughter has delivered this weapon to. And he's this charismatic Che Guevara type guy. He's even got like the beret and he's leading this revolution of the people of Los Angeles against this theocratic government. Yeah, you know, this scene is really interesting because this film is obviously the big budget remake. It's got $50 million, which is a lot of money in 1996 for, for a film. And strangely, I feel like they spent a lot of the money on some of these big scenes, which I didn't think had to be as big as they were. Did you notice that there were like establishment shots of like the little marketplaces here? And there are like... 500 extras, like in dystopian future costumes, just walking around in all these various little huts. And there's so much going on here that they never really explore. But I found these sets to be so elaborate. Did you notice that? I did. And it is very, very obvious. Like, this is a scene where they spent a lot of money to make this look good. Like, earlier in the movie, when they show, like, the destruction of LA with that earthquake, they put money into that. That looks like on par with what you saw on Independence Day. Then there are other shots where it looks horrible. So even with a $50 million budget, you're still going to have to make choices on where millions of dollars are going to go here, there, wherever. And some of their decisions were questionable, I think. You know, you always hear filmmakers like James Cameron, he talks about, I want to make this film in 1987, but the technology wasn't there yet. And some shots are really well done. And certain choices, you feel like they would have been like, ask the, you know, the computer uh, animation guys, like, can you make this scene look good? And they would say yes or no. And I feel like they got lied to. Right, right, right. And yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll certainly talk about some of those scenes, but I appreciate the fact that Snake goes after Cuervo Jones really, really quickly in this movie. They don't really drag out the, where is he? He's on the other side of town. How will I get there? I don't know. Like, very quickly, Snake sees Cuervo Jones 
in a parade with the president's daughter. Presumably they have this weapon on them and he goes after them and he gets fairly close. But then Cuervo Jones has like one of those things that he like twirls around and throws and it like knocks Snake down. And then, you know, Snake is accosted by these thugs. And apparently now Snake is like a gunsmith like he's really good at shooting people like they mentioned that earlier in the movie that that's what he was arrested for i thought this scene is it's kind of charming it shows like the snake plissken character i specifically remember this being in the trailer i remember it specifically landing with a thud in the theaters that they were expecting people to laugh at this maybe it's snake versus like five or six bad guys and he just kind of talks in his like Clint Eastwood the man without a name kind of tough guy and he goes all right guys Bangkok rules and he picks up this tin can and he's he says I throw it in the air nobody draws until it hits the ground and then you know open fire and I you know best man wins and he throws it in the air and everyone looks up in the air you know waiting for the can to drop and snake he cheats and he just kills everyone and the second uh, hits the ground he then goes draw and it's a fun line. It's a fun scene. It's not a way to end a trailer with a laugh. And it did not work. And I remember like things like this definitely lead to people not being excited about this film. You know what it is? They're going for that moment in Raiders of the Lost Ark where the dangerous guy holds that big sword and he like tosses it back and forth and then Indiana Jones just shoots him. That's what they were trying for and it doesn't really work. It doesn't really land. And it also sort of makes Snake Plissken look like a cheater. He's not playing by the rules. And okay, yeah, he's a renegade who doesn't play by the rules. All right, I get it. But like... I don't know, shouldn't he have, like, some integrity, I guess? No, I mean, I think the scene's fine. It's just not as funny as when the, the screenwriter wrote this scene, he thought it was hysterical. And I think John Carpenter thought this scene was a lot funnier than it is. I think it's fun, but it's not great. And it could be better. I don't know how to make it better, but it could be better. Well, I mean, the script was written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, who's a producer, and Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell also wrote this script. Uh, this is the only writing credit that Kurt Russell has, by the way. Now, I wonder if he actually wrote the screenplay or if it's one of the situations where he probably, you know, rewrote enough dialogue that they're like, hey, Kurt, we're going to give you some writing credit. No, no, no. Apparently he like worked with John Carpenter on the screenplay. Oh, okay. Accor According to what I read today, like he worked on the script with John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. I don't know. I wasn't there, but that's what I read. Okay. But anyway, uh, after this shootout, Snake meets Map to the Stars Eddie. This is a character who peddles maps to the stars. And if you've ever been in L.A., there are maps to the stars, which is basically like these things that tell you where the celebrities live. And you can drive around and be like, oh, look, there's Tom Arnold's house. Okay, and then drive on to someone else's house. Why did you pick Tom Arnold of anyone? I've never seen these actual maps, but wouldn't it be more Tom Hanks and Jennifer Aniston? Well, I mean, the reason I said Tom Arnold was because I imagine it as these guys are hustlers. They don't really have the addresses of like the big celebrities, but 
I bet nowadays they do. Like, I'm sure now everyone knows where every huge celebrity lives. I guess I imagine it more from like when I was in LA as a kid and no, I never bought one of these maps. I've never looked at one, but I just always imagined that like it was probably a gimmick and like the quote unquote stars that they were giving you weren't really that great. Maybe that's not true. I really don't know. But this character is played by Steve Buscemi. Always good to see him. We saw him not that long ago when we talked about The Wedding Singer. That was a smaller role. That was uncredited, actually. Yeah, and Steve Buscemi definitely is still one of those that guy kind of people at this point. Like People are like, where have I seen this guy before? Because he's not a big star yet. You don't know his name. Right, 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 right. What was his breakout role, would you say? Um, I would say probably Fargo... Uh, Sopranos definitely put him in a a lot of uh, households. I think Sopranos elevated him from like, oh, okay, you know this guy to like A-list. Right. But then uh, this guy offers Snake a map and says, you know, I'll show you around. It'll only be $50,000. And Snake's like, okay, whatever. And he walks away. He ends up being captured by the Surgeon General of Beverly Hills, You were talking about uh, Evil Dead earlier. The Surgeon General is played by Bruce Campbell, Ash from the Evil Dead movies. And it's sort of like the Matt from the Stars thing where these are all L.A. jokes. And in Escape from New York, they made a bunch of New York jokes. Here, they're really going hard with the L.A. jokes. We didn't mention it, but like when Snake is walking around, he walks by like the Mulholland Drive street sign and like the Beverly Hills sign. And like it's that stereotype of, oh, people in L.A. are all really superficial and they all have plastic surgery. So in this movie, Snake is kidnapped by a plastic surgeon who wants to cut him up and, you know, like take his one good blue eye. He also meets this woman, Taslima, who I recognized as the love interest from Big Top Pee Wee. She was also in Rain Man. And she's kind of positioning herself as like this guide who's going to show Snake around after they escape from the Surgeon General guy. And she's like, you know, here in L.A., this is the only place where people can really be free out there in the rest of the United States. That's the real prison. And it's not so bad here once you get used to it. And then, of course, immediately she's shot. She said her profound statement. So she's immediately killed. Another expendable female character that like could have been interesting, could have been like a cool sidekick, but no. Yeah. So uh, Snake is uh, he's running away and he wound up being captured by none other than Map to the Stars Eddie, who should be called Scumbag Eddie because he turns on Snake and captures him. Right. And he brings him to Cuervo Jones and Cuervo Jones is going to like torture him. First, he like puts him on a treadmill and like makes the incline really high. And then Cuervo does like a video to the world of I have access to this weapon. I can do whatever I want. You will bow down before me kind of a thing. And the good guys see that, oh, look, Snake is alive. He's in the background on this treadmill. And then like in the next scene, they take him off the treadmill and they bring him to like this arena. I was just thinking like, wait, what was the point of the treadmill? Like, I thought they were going to do something with that, and they don't at all. 
No, that, that entire scene does not need the treadmill at all. What that scene is really used for was that's your Bond villain scene where he basically reveals the plan. We find out what is this valuable weapon that the president's daughter has stolen. And at its heart, it's uh, an EMP, electromagnetic pulse device. Anything that runs on electricity can neutralize it and render it neutral. And it could target entire cities, entire countries. And they say in passing, like, there is like a world code, but you know, that would be crazy to use that. Well, yeah, but that doesn't make any fucking sense because they literally say you could take out just a single taxi cab in Buenos Aires or a whole country or the whole world, but anything you want to take out has a three digit code. Like the code to take out the whole world is 666 and they're going to take out Mexico later in the movie and it's like 742 or whatever it is. So what's the code for that one taxi cab in Buenos Aires? Three digit codes? You're going to run out of numbers really quick. The code for the taxi cab is 942. Oh, okay, good. Thanks. I get why they wanted it to be simplistic and why they wanted 666 to be like the code to end the world. But like, then they just should have not had that line about the one car in Buenos Aires. Just say it could take out any individual country's power. I mean, it could be as simple as like just typing in 666 is the global code and there's a more complicated code for other things. But yeah, it does seem a little simplistic. Right. But then they bring Snake to this arena. Is it the USC football stadium? Is that what it's supposed to be? I think. I have no idea, but this is definitely the big version of the last film. The last film's uh, ring scene, I thought the battle was pretty cool. You got this uh, big, muscular guy, and, and it's a fight to the death with clubs that have nails in it. It's pretty thrilling for the low budget. And I'm thinking, all right, like you could see this is not a little like boxing ring. This is an arena. What are they going to do? Is this going to be like, is it going to be a monster that he's going to have to fight? Is it going to be like, you know, some huge robot. Like, this is the summer of Independence Day. Like, bring on the, like, fun special effects shit. Right. But instead, it's a basketball challenge. Not even a basketball game. It's not even like when we talked about Space Jam, where it's like, you know, a, a thrilling basketball game. No, he just has to run back and forth up and down the court and make five shots. He only has 10 seconds in between shots. And like, that's it. It's so anticlimactic. It's so weird. It's so random. I feel like in Hook, wasn't there like a big basketball scene in Hook where it's like, why is there all this basketball here? Is it just because basketball was popular when the movie was made? Like, I don't get it at all. I mean, my only guess is that this film is made for family audiences, that they didn't want to be rated R, so that they couldn't go the hard violence that they did in the first one. That's the only thing I could think of. But I don't understand why they didn't play a bunch of bad guys that are like good at basketball and say, well, you have to beat all five of them. And Snake just kind of like outcools them. But also, it doesn't make any sense. Why is he a good basketball player? Right. Also, by the way, it, this movie is rated R. Oh, really? I, I just assumed this was like the PG-13 version of it. Wow, no. that makes it so much lamer. Yeah, I mean, it is really, really dumb. Also, 
not the biggest detail, but like before Snake goes in to do the basketball challenge, there's another guy who fails and then they shoot him just to show you that this is a really serious thing. But the guy fails and there's all of these guys surrounding the basketball court and they all fire at him with machine guns, but like they encircle the court. So it's like they're going to shoot each other. Like with machine guns, if there's a guy across from you shooting one guy in the middle, like some of these gunmen are also going to get killed, like accidentally. This is a mistake done in a lot of films. I think they always go for that aesthetic of surrounding the guy and shooting him, but they do this in a lot of films. Uh, And it's done in really well-made films and, you know, films that are not so well-made, but it's always annoyed me. Yeah, it's dumb. Uh, But, you know, surprising no one, Snake does it. He's the first person to ever complete this challenge. Uh, The crowd starts cheering, Snake, 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 because they love him. And also because they did that in Escape from New York. Right. It's the exact same thing as Escape from New York. Except in Escape from New York, this guy beat the champion. Like, like there was a reason why the crowd went insane. I guess he did a really interesting basketball drill that, like, a varsity player would probably find challenging in any high school. Yeah, and apparently Kurt Russell did all of these shots himself, like even the one from full court. Apparently, he practiced really hard to get really good at basketball for this scene. It was important to him that he do it, and he did it, allegedly. So good on him. Well, I mean, if you have enough practice, I mean, enough tries, you can make a half-court shot. A full-court shot, though? That's really hard. Yeah, if you have enough tries. I guess. Uh, But... Cuervo Jones is going to shoot Snake anyway because, you know, he hates him, but he's able to escape because there's another earthquake. And, you know, Snake's able to get out of the stadium then, and he ends up getting the weapon, and he steals it and goes into the sewer, but then Eddie shoots him, and Snake drops the thing, and then Eddie comes back up and is like, hey, Cuervo, guess what? I killed Snake. And he does shoot him. He shoots him in the leg. Again, this mirrors the first movie where uh, Snake gets shot in the leg and now he's injured and he's walking with a limp. And Eddie is convinced that Snake is dead, but Snake is not dead. He just ends up on a beach somewhere with Pipeline, the Peter Fonda character that we saw earlier, who's a surfer. And he's like, all right, well, there's going to be a huge tsunami. It's coming right now. Get ready. We're going to surf. And a few weeks back, we talked about Point Break with our friend Adam Pincus, and we were talking about how beautiful the surfing is in that movie, especially that night surfing scene. This surfing scene, however, looks like garbage. This is an example of a special effect shot where they spent no money, or I guess they spent some money, but however much they spent, it was not enough. It looks like a thing that I think I did in Southern California in the 90s where you would like go on the beach and there would be a surfboard and a green screen behind you and you kind of put your hands out to the side and shake your hips and pretend that you were surfing and say, hang 10, dude. Like that's what this scene looks like. It's awful. I agree. And I think this scene is supposed to be like the signature scene of the film. It is the center part of the poster of this film. I remember it being in the trailer. And I completely agree with you. I was going to say it looks like something out of a 1960s, like Sean Connery, James Bond film. Like it's that bad. Yeah. And you can tell it's green screen. You can tell he's like in a pool where there's like water just shooting at his face. Then he's able to surf 
out of the ocean and onto Eddie's car because Eddie happens to be driving by just then. It's really, really lame. But then Eddie takes Snake to see this other criminal mastermind who's in L.A. called Hershey. And when Snake meets Hershey, he says that he recognizes that voice and he knows this person as Carjack Malone, who is a guy he used to like steal cars with or do crimes with or whatever. But now this person is a woman and Snake is like, no, you're not a woman. You're a man. And so he does basically what Crocodile Dundee does and just goes right over to her and grabs her crotch. And this is not okay. This is not acceptable. You could even say, like, it's kind of cool that they put a trans character in this movie in the 90s. But the way that Snake reacts to her is terrible. Yeah, when I first saw this character, I was like there's a trans character in here. And I'm like, this is probably not that progressive. What probably is happening here is it's such a weird future that, look, there's a man dressed as a woman and they're kind of accidentally getting away with, ah, you're showing a transgender character. And then they pull a crocodile Dundee. It was like, ah! Yeah, it's a shame. And, you know, it's also Pam Greer who plays this character and she's awesome. You know, like they could have done something cool with her whether she was trans or not. Um, But, you know, they just kind of like digitally make her voice lower and it just sounds like a bad digital audio effect. It's just crappy all around. When he said, I know you, you're Carjack Malone, I immediately went back to Escape from New York and I was like, oh, who was Carjack Malone? I don't remember that. Fine, they, they finally found a way to tie in Escape from New York into here, but they couldn't get the actor back or something, so they made the character now a woman. I thought that's where they were going with this. You're 100% right. They're kind of building out this other thing that happened in between Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. about Cleveland. They make several references to like, oh, we almost had you back in Cleveland, Snake. And I heard you got really put through the ringer in Cleveland. And then whatever happened with Snake and Carjack Malone happened in Cleveland. Like, you left me for dead in Cleveland. I think there was like a comic or book or something that kind of filled in what happened in Cleveland. So like they're kind of making it seem like, oh, Snake Plissken's had lots of adventures in lots of cities and okay, that's fine. But it could have been something that tied to the first movie and it just doesn't. Or maybe uh, when this film is such a success, they'll be like, next year, it's the not prequel, not the sequel, not the remake, but the midquel. It's going to be Escape from Cleveland. We'll find out what happened to Snake back in 2011. Maybe, maybe. But while they're all there with Hershey, they figure out that Cuervo Jones has the president's daughter and this weapon at Happy Kingdom, a not-so-subtle reference to Disneyland, and they have to, like, take a hang glider to get there because there's no way they'll be able to drive there because the roads are in really terrible shape. And that's also another L.A. joke, I assume, that, like, even in the apocalypse, it still takes hours to get from one side of L.A. to the other. Traffic's always so bad. Get it? but um bum So they take these hang gliders. Again, this looks terrible and green-screeny and just, like, not good. They could have spent a little bit more money on this special effect. But like they go into 
this Disney-esque place, and there's hundreds and hundreds of bad guys all shooting at whatever it is, like five characters, you know, Snake, Hershey, Eddie, and a couple of their friends. And like all the good guys are fine. It's that kind of thing that you see in a lot of movies where a million bad guys can be shooting three good guys and all of the bad guys have machine guns, but they all miss. Like that happens a lot in this movie. Like Snake just really should get hit by a couple bullets here and there. And he just always doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't. Uh, He saves the day. He has a showdown with Cuervo. He defeats Cuervo, doesn't kill him, but he does manage to get the remote to the weapon. Right. They fly off in this helicopter because Cuervo Jones demanded that a helicopter come and the helicopter lands and then uh, Snake and Hershey and the president's daughter and Eddie and all of Hershey's friends get in the helicopter. But that's too many characters, so Hershey and all of her friends are quickly blown up by a rocket launcher or something. Eddie shoots Cuervo, but then falls out of the helicopter. And so now it's only Snake and Utopia in this helicopter. They're able to fly away from L.A. Uh, As they're getting close, Snake tells Utopia that she has to jump. He puts the remote in her pocket and kicks her out of the plane, and then lands and demands the cure for this virus that he was infected with. And the president's like, haha, I knew you'd fall for it. The timer hits zero, and he doesn't die because the virus, it wasn't this genetically man-made lethal thing. It's basically just a pretty bad flu. He's fine. It was enough that he would feel the effects of it. We see him in the movie like coughing and holding his head a little bit here and there. But it's not going to kill him. Uh, so he's done his side of the bargain. And he asks for a smoke. And of course, it's a non-smoking nation. So there's no smoking allowed. No guns. No premarital sex. No drinking. Nothing. Like thinking about that from like a 2021 lens, when you think about like no cursing, no drinking, no smoking, like the ultra Christian stuff feels very right wing. But then they say there's no guns, no red meat allowed, which is like what you would associate more with like very left wing, right? I think they were probably going for the more of like the the chaste, uh, you know, you don't eat red meat on Fridays, that kind of thing. That's probably what they're going for more. Because gotcha. yeah, the, the vegetarian thing does not go along with the, uh, you know, the religious nut. And the president, he makes this religious nut speech about America first and religion first. And we got to get rid of all the immoral people. And you know, we're going to destroy everyone who stands in our way. The president uh, takes out this remote. It's a remote that they were covered from utopia and he's like let me demonstrate the, our awesome power and he's about to wipe out whatever well did, did they mexico say mexico all right and he clicks it and nothing happens and they realize that uh they've been had so the president immediately orders uh snake's execution so the guy's uh once again, from multiple sides, they shoot him, and just as they shoot Pliskin, his image flickers. And Al, you were right when you said, remember the holograms for later. And specifically, earlier in the film, Snake, in his sort of like James Bond Q scene where he's given his guns and he's given all his bombs and stuff, someone gives him a hologram projection camera, but they specifically say there's only enough batteries in there for one use and if that's not enough for you they say so when you use it make it count 
So, you know, if you've been watching this film, you know that they have not used this really cool piece of technology yet. Somewhere along the way, when he's like radioing back to command, I think he says that his hologram thing was destroyed, which was not true. And he was lying. But, you know, that sort of was smart of him to say that then thinking ahead. And the commander kind of does make a reference to escape from New York here because they find Utopia and they find the remote on her. And he's like, oh, you were going to do a switch like you did in New York. Oh, you're getting predictable in your old age. And Snake's like, huh, I guess so. Like the commander anticipated that Snake was going to do a switch, but Snake anticipated that the commander was going to anticipate that. So he did a double switch. When the president presses play on the remote, it's a spiel from Matt from the Stars, Eddie. And now they realize that Snake has the real remote and the real disc, and he knows the real code, and they're all begging with him to not do it. But he does it. He pushes 666, and... Everything dies. All the electronics die, including his hologram machine. The president was about to have his daughter killed in an electric chair in like a portable electric chair that they just happened to bring with them, which seems like a lot of work when they have guns. And if they just want to execute somebody, it would be easier to do it that way. But uh, Snake sends the world basically back to the pre-industrial age. And then he looks to camera and says, welcome to the human race. And that's where the movie ends. It's bizarre. It's a bizarre ending. Like, what does that mean? Why is he looking to the camera? Is he welcoming the audience to the human race? What? Yeah, I'm not sure what that means. But uh, yeah, that that's the film. So, Al, what do you think? Uh, we've reviewed uh, both these films, Escape from New York. And what do you think this time? Did Escape from L.A., did, did that correct the flaws from last week? And do you think that this film stands the test of time? I do not think that this film stands the test of time. I think it does certain things better than its predecessor, but it makes a lot of mistakes along the way. And, oh, we're doing all of the things you liked about the first movie, but now we're doing it better. Like, okay, I guess that's interesting, but, like, do something different along the way. Do something else. They really don't. It really feels like a retread. It feels just like a beat-for-beat remake, and that's frustrating. Like, they could have done a lot more with the premise. They could have done something interesting. They could have taken it in a different direction. But really, it's like, okay, okay, okay. Here's everything you liked about the first movie, except we have a bigger budget. And instead of New York jokes, L.A. jokes. That's it. Like, that's it. That's what this movie is. I saw that John Carpenter has defended this movie and said that it's great and it's so much better than the first one. And he doesn't really understand why people don't like it. He thinks it's so much stronger and there's so much more happening. And I appreciate that. Like, it does feel like a more realized world. We see more of this L.A. and we get to it's not just like these dank shadows of like these hollowed out buildings that they were shooting in for the first movie where you see nothing and it all just looks really, really crappy. No, this movie looks better in certain scenes. Uh, even, you know, even the bad green screen stuff, I guess, looks better. Maybe. I don't know. That's debatable. But they don't bring anything interesting to the table. There's nothing really 
cool or inventive or different. And, you know, the coolest thing about Escape from New York, I thought, was the concept of a city is turned into a prison. And what does that world look like? I could get into that. I could get on board with that. This movie could have gone in a different direction about like the religious angle and the the country is so moral and Christian now. I mean, that is basically what happens in Handmaid's Tale. And that's a really interesting world. And that's a really interesting thing to explore. They don't really do anything with that. Hell, you know what they could have done? They could have pinned it on Snake. They could have said, Hey, Snake, remember that stunt you pulled in New York? Well, after that, that really popular president, you made a fool out of him. And you made it so that this guy could rise to power. Make it connected. Make it so that Snake feels responsible. Oh, that's interesting. You know, like, that would have been an easy thing to do. They just don't take any interesting risks. They don't do anything interesting with the movie. The L.A. jokes are just lame, I think. And no, I don't think the movie stands the test of time. The basketball thing is lame. Like the surfing thing is lame. They take some things that were cool about the first movie and make them worse. So no, I do not think that this movie stands the test of time. What do you think, James? Did you like this better than Escape from New York? Well, uh, as uh, our listeners will recall, I actually said that last week, uh, Escape from New York did stand the test of time. I'd never seen that film or this film. And I I found the last week's film to be fun. It was a low budget film and it actually kind of did a lot with its low budget. And this film, there's a few things, uh, first I want to say, that are done really well. One, Kurt Russell. I think he's just as cool as ever. And I really want Snake Plissken to be the coolest character ever because it's just a great character in terms of this dystopian future, kind of a a Mad Max that doesn't really care, and he's got a great outfit and this patch, and he's not too jacked to be, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he's not your, like, intellectual action film. He's not your uh, Jason Bourne kind of guy. Um, I like that. Uh, This film definitely fixes the uh, big problem that we both had with the first film, and that was that the the guffin, the the weapon that they were searching for in the first film, it it doesn't quite make sense. We didn't know what they were looking for. It was was some kind of cassette that contained information about nuclear fusion or something like that. But in this film, it's a very clear-cut weapon. The weapon makes sense. I believe that this single weapon is powerful enough to, you know, destroy the world, in a sense. It's a very believable weapon, and I believe that it's executable by uh, any one person. And I'll say, actually, I think the ending is actually pretty neat. I like the fact that uh, you're going to set, like, human progress back uh, half a millennium. And he's like, fuck you, and just presses the button. I think it's pretty cool. I like that ending. I don't quite understand the last line of, uh, you know, welcome to the human race. You know, I said one of the big uh, things I liked about last week's film, uh, the Escape from New York, is that its small budget gave it like a quaintness that I, I liked and I found charming. And this time, you know, the expression go big or go home, they did go big, but they didn't go anywhere. It's the same thing as the first film, but 
it's weird choices. Like I mentioned earlier, instead of like a small little, uh, you know, grudge match in what looks like a boxing ring, have like a battle royale with like airplanes coming in, helicopters, motorcycles, like all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it'll be unrealistic that Snake beats them all, but fine, let him beat them all. Instead, it's this weird basketball thing. Um, there's films like uh, The Purge, and, and that film, the first film's a small little film in a dystopian future where, you know, everyone knows for, for one day all crime, including murder, is legal. But the first film is actually a very small film about a single family that tries to survive that night. And the next film actually goes, huh, you know, it's a really interesting premise this world's in. Let's really explore the politics behind this. And, you know, when you mentioned that before, I, I was thinking... You know, like, ah, you know, maybe it's not his job to explore that. But I'm like, no, that's what actually made the Purge sequels very interesting because they focused more on, like, look how fucked up this world is and let's explore that part. And and this film doesn't really go there much. I will say one other thing that does, uh, I think that is good and stands up is this dystopian uh, religious fanatic. If I did watch this in 1996, which I didn't, but if I did, I'd kind of roll my eyes at, like, all right, cartoonish villain as the president of the United States. And now I can kind of see myself going, um, if like three or four things happen, this could really happen. So I, I, I kind of like that character. It's just that this big budget doesn't really change anything. And I, I really find myself thinking, why are you doing this film? Maybe if you actually just remade the first film, if you called it Escape from New York, but now we got a $50 million budget, and that could work. I don't know if you know this, but Alfred Hitchcock, he remade one of his own films. Tim Burton did the same thing um, with one of his uh, films. He made a short film early in his career, and then I forgot what it was called. It was some one of his animated films. Frankenweedy? Yes, I think Frankenweenie. I think that that was like a short film that they did. And, you know, this film, it doesn't have any real reason to exist. It's an homage to the first one. When you say that John Carpenter says that this film is so much better, what I think he's probably misunderstanding is the experience was probably so much better. When I look at his filmography, I think this is the biggest film he ever did. I mean, they had a $50 million budget. Kurt Russell and John Carpenter probably had their own trade. This is probably a blast to have his best bud. They made Big Trouble and Little China together. I mean, these guys have history together. And finally, they made it. Somebody gave them $50 million, and I think they had a great time making, uh, trying to relive the past of the 80s, but it didn't work. There's just no real reason for this film to exist. And for that reason, I'm going to say that Escape from L.A. does not stand the test of time. Yeah, it's a shame. You know, I remember really wanting to see Escape from New York. Like I mentioned last week, I remember after I did, I really wanted to see Escape from LA. I remember that I subscribed to this magazine called Cinescape, which talked about like a lot of like sci-fi movies. And I remember that in that magazine, they talked about how they were going to finish up this trilogy with Escape from Earth, which was going to, you know, be about Snake having to leave the planet, which when you think about they do kind of set up at the end of this movie that, you know, Snake has reset the clock on Earth and maybe he would need to leave the planet for some reason. And like, 
as a kid, I was like, that's amazing. Now he has to leave the whole planet. What? That like blew my mind. And, you know, of course, that never happened because Escape from L.A. was a bomb. And, you know, they they do talk about doing a remake every now and again. It comes up. There's one maybe in development. Maybe they pull the plug. Uh, who knows? It wouldn't surprise me if that actually happens. I saw something where Kurt Russell's son, uh, Wyatt Russell, who was in uh, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, his name was apparently floated as uh, taking on the role of Snake Plissken, and he said he has no interest. His his father was so iconic, he doesn't want to uh, you know step into that role. But um, it wouldn't surprise me if they remake this at some point, or, or remake the first one. Well, I guess if they remake the first one, they're also remaking this one because this is a remake of the first one. And, and, you know, this uh, remake would scream remade for streaming because the right people would be interested in it. And there's no chance they could, you know, flop. When uh, you quote uh, Wyatt Russell, I think there's just a problem with that word that I think that the producers had a big problem with this film. And when you say the iconic Snake Plissken, I think that maybe there's a slight overestimation of the popularity of this character. I want this character to be a lot cooler and popular than it is, but it just doesn't deserve it based on these films. And I don't think that Escape from New York, while I did think the film still stands up and I thought the character is really cool, I don't think it screamed, we need more Snake. And I think that they really, really made a bad investment, even if this film was great. I just don't think that, you know, our demographic, you know, we were mid-teenagers at this point. I don't know about you, but I saw a film like almost every weekend, especially in the summer. Like we would see pretty much anything. And we had no interest in this. Like, I just don't think that the character from this underground indie film was as popular as they thought it was in 1996. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, uh, Apparently, Solid Snake in Metal Gear Solid was inspired by uh, Snake Plissken. Snake on The Simpsons is, uh, I assume, named after this character. I mean, I think these movies have had an influence and an impact, and that's great. But like, to your point, is it like, a mainstream impact? Does everybody know about it? No, it's a niche thing. It's a cult thing. And, uh, you know, this movie really tried to make it go from a niche thing to a mainstream thing, and it just didn't work. And the exact same thing would happen a few years later with Pitch Black, which was an underground indie hit, and then they tried to make a $100 million Chronicles of Riddick from a small film to now he travels across the galaxy and oh, there's 20 different worlds to explore. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This character's just not popular enough for a $100 million film to make back its money. They still do it to this day. They'll, they'll take some, you know, YA novel that, like... It's popular among, like, seventh graders, but they have finicky attention. By the time you make this film, those seventh graders are, you know, 18 years old, and they're not into this stuff anymore. And the mainstream America is not into another angsty uh, teen from the dystopian future. Yeah, definitely. But that's going to do it for us this week. That's going to wrap up our Escape From series of movies. But come back next week if you want to... Yay! Uh, I am not looking forward to what's coming next, 
but I promised, tell everyone what we're going to do next, James. I think you might be pleasantly surprised. We are going to do some classic movies. Now, if you folks remember, back in March, we had our Muppets March. March Muppet Madness. Right. Uh, and I figured, Muppet March, well, let's do Star Trek September. Which doesn't have nearly the same ring to it, but whatever. Yeah, so we're going to start with Star Trek 2, right? You said that Star Trek 1 is skippable? Yeah, we, we could skip that one. It was uh, Star Trek trying to make a 2001 film. But Star Trek 2, 3, and 4, that is its own trilogy. So we're going to be watching that trilogy. So, uh, you know, we're going to have a good time with that. Or we won't. But I will tell you that you are going to be pleasantly surprised as to who plays one of the Klingons in one of these films. James, you have never said a lamer sentence than that. But I guess that'll change next week when you talk more about Klingons. Oh, dear God, help me. I will go into it with an open mind. I will be positive. I will not be so negative. Or I will try. I promise. That is my promise. I will try. But don't miss those episodes. They will be fun whether you like or loathe Star Trek. We'll have a good time. I promise you that. Until then, talk to us. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Let us know your thoughts on Escape from New York, on Escape from LA, on Escaping from Anywhere. And uh, we'll talk to you next week, everybody. Goodbye. Bye.